Playing Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice has been one of the most remarkable gaming experiences I've ever had. I initially planned to do a short 10 to 15 minute review on it, speaking briefly about each of the components, but after playing through it the first time, I knew that that simply wasn't fair and that I needed to give this game much more attention than anyone else was. This game got me immersed into the mind and thoughts of its main character so effortlessly that I honestly needed the same resolution that Senua did. And it was an experience that I truly am at a loss for words as to how to describe it. So naturally, in typical Lukey Poo fashion, I decided to sit down and record a video that's going to be well over an hour explaining all of this. A contradiction? Sure. But I basically live for those anyways, so I figured no harm, no foul. Over the course of this very long video, with which I have included timestamps in the description box below so that you can jump around to whatever topic you'd like to see discussed, should you need to, I will be discussing both the narrative and the gameplay and providing my overall thoughts on the game. I will be going over the narrative in very specific detail, so if you haven't played the game and are looking to, take this as your spoiler warning, go buy the game, it's only $30 on Steam or on the PS4, and then you can come back to this video afterwards. This video is not going to be a review, but if you were looking for my recommendation, I would say that you absolutely need to play this game. It is not just an incredible experience, but it's an important one. And with that, that's all I'm going to say. If you're interested at all in this game, buy it, play it, and then come back. But with that said, let's just jump right into it. Now, first things first. I think it's very, very important to stress what this game is attempting to do and where it fits on the broad spectrum of video games. Is it more of a narrative title? Is it trying to be a more gameplay-focused thing? Are they trying to give you an experience, a story, something that you can talk to your friends about and will impact you for the rest of your life? Or are they simply trying to give you a bland, sort of mindless, entertaining thing to do in your spare time? That's very important to distinguish because that sets the standard and the the expectation moving forward. Now, Hellblade is available on the PlayStation 4, and the PlayStation 4 and Sony in general have really been pushing for more narrative experiences in their exclusives, or at least half exclusives. Uh, for instance, Hellblade is available on PS4 and PC, making it sort of a half exclusive. The most obvious example of these types of narrative-focused experiences would of course be the Naughty Dog games. Games that are still games, they have gameplay elements, but they are certainly not gameplay-focused. It's narrative first and foremost, narrative being king, and then gameplay takes a sort of backseat. It's there, but it's not their prime directive. Hellblade is no different. It has the mandatory gameplay sequences when it needs to, and sometimes these actually feed into narrative moments, which we'll discuss in a moment, but in general, they're more obligatory. The developers, Ninja Theory, felt like they needed to have some sort of typical gameplay mechanic to pair with the narrative so that you weren't just totally overwhelmed by essentially a seven-hour cinematic experience. 
Now this is the first disclaimer, and it's the one most reviewers will point out. If you're looking for a raw, gameplay-focused experience, you're simply not going to find it. A game like The Witcher 3 or Skyrim or an RTS like Hearts of Iron 4, you can get easily 100, 200, 300 hours out of. I have a friend that's put 1,200 hours into Hearts of Iron 4. It's easy to do that because the gameplay is the focus and the narrative is there as well, but it's not the prime directive. Hellblade, rather, is going to give you seven hours that you will never, ever forget. If you truly give yourself over to the game, it will impact you on a level that, for me at least, I haven't experienced before. And since I mentioned other reviewers, I think I should also address the problem with 99% of the reviews I've seen on Hellblade. And that is specifically with regards to the policy that Ninja Theory approached review copies with. Ninja Theory went with a same-day embargo, which essentially just means that every reviewer you've seen from a major gaming publication or a large YouTube channel that got a review out on launch day, it means they rushed through this game. Now, to be fair, most people will get through this game in about seven hours. You can, in theory, play through the game at a casual pace and make a review all in the same day fairly easily, but the reality is that 99% of those reviewers rushed through the game, didn't sit down, relax into it, settle into it, and give it all of their attention for those full seven hours. Mostly, these people were playing through a game they knew wasn't going to be crazy long, but they knew that if they didn't release a review that day, they're losing massive amounts of money. As a result, those reviewers, and you can't really be mad at them, it's their job. They need to make money, they need to put these reviews out on the day that the game releases, or at least as early as physically possible to get the clicks. They ended up putting out reviews that weren't as informed as they could be and didn't give enough credence to the game. I, on the other hand, have tried very, very hard to give this game as much time as possible. I've played through it three times and enjoyed each playthrough in preparation for this video. And that is yet another great thing about this sort of middle-of-the-road double-A, as many people have been calling it, title. It's got many of the quality standards of a triple-A title while having the size and scope of a sort of more indie title. So you get the quality of a triple-A, but in a much smaller form factor. It's a middle-of-the-road experience, as many people have put it, especially being priced at only $30. Now, I'm not really approaching this video as a review, so to speak. If I had approached it that way, then I would have released this video much, much sooner and much, much smaller. I wouldn't have given this game this much time. I'm instead approaching this video as a critique of a game that I don't just think is phenomenal and incredible, but as a game that is very, very important. And I personally believe that we'll be looking back at Hellblade in a few years with an overwhelming respect for what Ninja Theory accomplished. Now, the reason I want to just make it clear that I'm not approaching this as a review specifically and instead as a critique is because there's different purposes behind each of those videos. A review is meant to try to inform the viewer of what a product is offering, and then the viewer can essentially decide if they want to spend their money on it based on what the reviewer states in his or her review. For the purposes of maintaining focus, what I will say is that at the price point of $29.99, which you can 
pay for this game right now to get it on either PC or PS4 or PS4 Pro, this is an absolute must and there is no reason not to give Ninja Theory $30 for this experience. I would have easily paid $60 for what I got out of this game. I'm sure I'm going to get even more while I go through the process of making this critique. I cannot recommend this enough. But with all of that said, let's slowly start delving into the specifics of the narrative. The game is about a Celtic female warrior by the name of Senoa, and this is actually directly inspired by a recently discovered Celtic goddess by the name of Senuna. But at the time when they initially were concepting Hellblade, it was believed that her name was Senua, and the game director thought that sounded cool, that thought that sounded interesting, and decided to make this main character a female warrior Celtic goddess-inspired character, all behind the name of Senua. Now, I actually really, really appreciated this portrayal because I am actually a direct descendant of the Picts, which it was a Celtic tribe, essentially, in uh, what is now modern-day Scotland that caused the Roman Empire many, many issues and actually inspired and forced the Romans' hand in the building of Hadrian's Wall. That's where Senua is based on and inspired from, and all of the art design in this game and in this world, everything from the war paint on her face to the way her hair is braided is directly inspired and taken from the Pict tradition. Essentially, the backstory for Senua and her journey is that she was a warrior for her tribe, but she had some mental issues and was struggling with some stuff. She eventually met a man by the name of Dillian, whom she fell in love with, but she was exiled for some period of time, and when she returned, she found her entire village and tribe devastated by what were essentially Viking warriors. Now, this is once again inspired by history. It's not exactly clear whether or not the Vikings were directly responsible for the eventual extinction of the Picts, or at least the absorption of the Picts into what became the Viking tribes. It's very likely that Vikings necessarily just came to Scotland and they came and they started mating and breeding with many of the women of the Pict tribe, and they were essentially just brought into the Viking tribes and families and pretty Pretty soon they were merged and they became the same. But for the sake of this story, it's assumed that the Vikings came through and massacred Senua's tribe. Now, I'm sure I don't need to explain to you just how violent the Vikings were, but for the sake of demonstration, they were incredibly, incredibly violent. All they would do all day long is sail around to different locations, villages, and tribes that neighbored where they currently were. Then they would rape and pillage everything in sight and then burn everything and leave and take off to the next place. Occasionally, they would take women with them uh, from those tribes, the most beautiful ones, and then they would become their new, in the words of South Park, but buddies, and they would have children and eventually become integrated into the tribe. But for the sake of Hellblade, what happened is the Vikings came to her village, killed everyone, and strung up some of the leaders in what the Vikings actually called Blood Eagles. It was a ritual where they would strap somebody up with ropes along two poles uh, so they're completely flayed out, and they would also cut their back open so that the back skin would stretch like an eagle and the sun would bake them alive. Not a very pleasant way to go, and it was a sort of offering to the Viking gods, a way of saying, we did this for you, that makes it okay, and a way of demonstrating to everyone else that you shouldn't mess with these Vikings. 
Now, this is precisely what happened to Senua's one true love, Dillian. He was a leader of the tribe, and while she was away in exile, doing something, fighting perhaps, she came back, returned to see him strung up as a blood eagle. And we actually get to see this at one point in the game in what is essentially a flashback. According to the game's director, this was the pivotal moment that flung her into a deep state of psychosis, which is what the central theme of the game is on. Now, what exactly is psychosis? Well, first and foremost, as explained in one of the behind-the-scenes videos offered up on the main menu with the game, psychosis is actually just a descriptive term, and typically it exhibits itself in two main symptoms, hallucinations and delusions, both of which Senua experience over the course of the game, and you actually get to experience most of these with her. Senua has many, many hallucinations as she explores this world, and as you you explore the world with her. Everything from seeing different creatures pop up to different trees to seeing all sorts of floating objects in the air whenever she looks at a fire. Everything is built around a hallucination and that's one of the main ideas behind Hellblade is that the world you're experiencing with Senua was actually created within Senua's mind. The entire thing is meant to be very unsettling and you should be questioning everything you see just as she does. And that's a very, very important thing to understand, is that Hellblade is not trying to show you the world and then a crazy person within it. They're trying to show you the world that a crazy person like Senua is experiencing alongside her. And that's something that the game's developers, Ninja Theory, have expressed extreme frustration with. Specifically, that mental illness is such a taboo subject. People experience psychosis, people experience delusions of grandeur and hallucinations and all sorts of things, but they can't talk about it. It's still socially taboo, and you don't really see it in video games. And if you do, the only thing you get to experience it with specifically is that you see some crazy person off in the corner. You might see Mama Murphy sitting off in a corner doing a bunch of drugs telling you the future, but you never get to experience the world from their perspective and truly understand what they're experiencing. In Hellblade, there literally is no avoiding it. You will experience the world as Senua sees it through her eyes, ears, mouth, tongue, brain, everything. And this led me to honestly realize that this was the most remarkable experience I've ever had playing a video game. The first time I played Hellblade, I did it in one sitting, easily, and that was because I was so engorged and engaged in the world they had presented me that I couldn't leave. I was playing through this world as somebody with this psychosis, and I needed it to be resolved. I truly have never been as immersed in a video game as I have been with Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, and I honestly am not sure if I'm the only one who's experienced this or if many other people have experienced it, but I simply haven't heard their voices. It's one of the reasons I'm so frustrated by the other reviewers who have tackled this game, because I felt that they didn't give this game the due credence and uh, respect that a normal game would receive, simply because they're like, hey, it's a $30 title, it's a short game, we can rush through it and we don't need to give it too much focus or effort, it really breaks my heart because for me, this game was a remarkable experience. 
Now, I'm aware many other people probably won't connect with it as much. They will have a decent experience or they'll appreciate the visual beauty or the, the audio or the soundtrack. And they'll be like, hey, that was interesting. A good 30 bucks, but it wasn't anything truly mind-blowingly incredible. And I understand that. But I'm telling you, from my perspective and what I experienced, it was one of the most remarkable and incredible things I've ever done. Now I'll give you one more chance to bail. I'm about to start showing many, many clips of stages later on in the game that could be construed as complete and utter spoilers. And truly, this is a game that if you're going to experience it all, you should experience it completely fresh and without any spoilers. So truly, if this seems interesting, even in the slightest, you should go out, purchase this game, pause the video, come back later if you really want to. To, you have to experience this. Anyway, moving on. Senua's story and journey starts out with you seeing her paddling on a canoe made out of a log as you start hearing voices behind you, around you. And this is once again why it's very important to play this game with headphones because this game actually utilizes three-dimensional sound, which honestly makes it sound as though there's actual voices in your head. The voices set the premise and give you an opportunity to look inside the mind of Senua, whereas typically within a video game you'd have to wait for a monologue or some big expositing moment where the main character talks for 10 minutes to somebody else in order to understand what they're thinking. But in this case, it works much more like a book where you actually get the author, the person who's most familiar with the character's mind and thinking, you actually get to hear those thoughts in your own head and it's a really cool way of doing it. It's also important to remember that there is no menu, there's no HUD, there's nothing like that in Hellblade at all. All you have are these voices that will sometimes tell you to do things, to look up, they'll give you little hints in combat, they'll say watch out behind you, or look out, or don't let them get behind you as a way of sort of tutoring you and offering those tutorials through an in-game representation of Senua's thoughts. Now, I will be completely honest, the first time I played through this, I ran up some stairs, it was super rainy, and I reached a ladder, and there was no on-screen pop-up or anything to tell me what button I needed to press in order to actually climb this ladder. I just assumed, uh, stupidly, that it would automatically start climbing the ladder, when in reality, there's a button you need to press to engage and sort of interact with the ladder to climb it. And when I first played it, I was a little confused, and I thought, well, maybe this HUD thing just didn't pop up or generate, when in reality, they're just expecting you to go through the game figuring these things out by yourself. There's no combat tutorial, there's nothing like that. You simply start playing, they give you control, and you will, by the end of the game, have gone through the entire thing without the developer ever telling you explicitly how to play. Now, some people will absolutely love this, and some people will absolutely hate it. I, at first, was a little uncomfortable with it. I'm somebody who typically likes a little explanation, likes to know how to play the game that I'm trying to play, but by the time I was 10, 15, 20 minutes into the game, I had actually adapted pretty well to it, and I was at the point where I was actually convinced that all of this was an attempt at immersion, and every little thing they were doing was an attempt to get the player feeling just as Senua was feeling in the moment. If you're confused, that's good, because Senua in that moment is also confused. They want you to feel the same 
same way as the character. And this is one of the reasons I believe I was able to get so immersed in the world of Hellblade and into Senua's journey, because everything I was experiencing was constructed and specifically chosen in order to make me feel the same way the character on screen felt. I will say this probably wouldn't be the case if I had split up my playthrough into multiple takes. So if I had just sat down and played half an hour, half an hour, half an hour, 45 minutes, half an hour, an hour. If I had done that, I probably wouldn't have gotten as much out of the game. So my personal recommendation to you, if you're going to play this or if you already have and want to play it again, is to sit down, set aside an evening, perhaps invite a friend over and get a, an aux splitter so you can each have your own pair of headphones and play through the whole thing start to finish in one go. Again, it's only six to seven hours to get through the whole thing on your second run so it's doable but you really should try to experience this game in one shot after all that's what Senua is experiencing she's not getting any breaks and therefore if you're trying to be really immersive you shouldn't either now, Senua's journey, as explained by the voices in her head, is fairly straightforward. Basically, there's her true love that we mentioned previously, Dillian, and he died in that very grotesque demonstration that Senua happened upon. And Senua has traveled, essentially, to what is her own hell, or hell, in order to try to save his soul. And this is why, when I initially was playing through the game, I felt as though I was playing sort of a, a Dante's Inferno flipped on its head, whereas in Dante's Inferno, it was Dante seeking out his love, trying to save her soul. In this case, it's Senua seeking out her love, trying to save his soul. And I'm not sure if this was an intentional thing. It seems fairly obvious a comparison to make to me at least, but I haven't heard anything directly from the developers speaking to this point. So it's possible it was just a coincidence, but I personally haven't seen anything to confirm that. And that's the basic premise of the story. Senoa is traveling to save her one love, but the overarching theme is that she needs to be willing to give in and sort of give up Dillian and everything that she's suffered with over the past however long it's been. Now, on top of this, there's also the overarching theme of her mental illness. The incident with Dillian seeing him strung up in the Blood Eagle sacrifice certainly induced a certain state of psychosis, or at least encouraged it and made it even more extreme. It fed it and made it into what it is when you experience it in the game. Now, this mental illness is not initially the focus of your journey, but as you go through, you realize that the mental illness is affecting everything she's interacting with, and very possibly, even the journey itself could be a delusion. At one point in the game, I remember thinking to myself, is this entire thing going to be basically just an episode? She's writhing on the floor in her and Dillian's room. Dillian's trying to comfort her, but he can't do anything. All of this is taking place in her head. Maybe that's possible. But no, it's an actual journey. But the entire thing is put through this filter of her mental illness that you have to experience and walk with her side by side experiencing as well. Now, the developers, Ninja Theory, went to great lengths to try and make every experience, specifically the ones that were inspired by the psychotic episodes, very, very realistic. Everything from the fuzzy uh, scenery when you're running through being chased by your demons to... Uh, 
the way that she interacts with voices in her head to the weird flashbacks, flash sideways, lost-esque moments and cutbacks and discussions she has with people that aren't actually there. All of that is directly inspired by people that Ninja Theory invited in and talked to in large panels. And they did this throughout the entirety of the three year or so development cycle of this game. Every few months, they'd invite these people back, show them the new filters they were applying, the new voices or methods they were using to record it, the new implementation they were using, and then they'd get these people who had previously experienced these psychotic episodes, or at least knew what they were like. These people would listen to it, would watch it, and then offer their input. And Ninja Theory would then alter or fix whatever the sequence needed based on their recommendations. A lot of care has gone into this, and once you realize just how sick in the head Senua is, then you gain all of this newfound appreciation for what she's experiencing and the performance given in order to portray Senua. When I initially saw some of the footage of Hellblade, I thought that Senua seemed a little bizarre, a little fagazi. Her eyes were weirdly wide open and her teeth were always showing. I thought it was a little strange and a sort of weird performance. I thought maybe it was the acting that I found weird. But once I actually sat down to play the game, it all made sense. And all of a sudden, Senua became this very endearing, sympathetic, empathetic individual who I just wanted to help. It turns out the actress who played Senua wasn't actually an actress who auditioned for the role. She actually was just the video editor for Ninja Theory, and she did the sort of stand-in work while they were figuring out the tech that would eventually be implemented into the game. One day, the game's director had an epiphany and realized that she had, ever since she started, it basically embodied Senua and should get, be given the chance to portray her. And sure enough, she did, and I have to say she did a phenomenal job. As somebody who has a lot of experience in acting myself, I can appreciate and really respect the work that went into portraying Senua as a character. And the fact that this girl has no history or background in acting whatsoever is truly impressive. And I know she's got a bright future ahead of her should she choose to pursue acting furthermore. Now, once you go through sort of the introductory section where it kind of explains the plot in very vague terms, you eventually come to a room with a big door on it. And this door will eventually show a large glyph that you will need to match up by defeating essentially two mini bosses or bosses, however you look at it, at the other end of the room. There's two doors and you can choose which one you do first. One of them is sort of inspired by fire. The other is mainly inspired by crows. I chose to do the fire section first because I figured right is always right, so I went to the right first and started on that path. Now this was the first time I really set an expectation in my mind without even really knowing it for the game moving forward. In my head, most games tend to have three acts. They tend to work with the first act that sets it up, the second act, which is primarily gameplay, and then the third act that kind of finalizes everything. And the way I was thinking that Hellblade was going to work is that you get through the first 10, 15, 20 minutes or so, and you reach this point, this room that has three doors, two doors that you need to complete and go through before accessing the third. And my assumption 
was that the first door, whatever you chose, was going to lead you into one path. You'd go through that, experience it. You'd finish that. You move on to the next one, complete that, and then move on to the final boss fight in the final room, the door that's opened up after you've completed the other two. And that was going to be the game. And this was uh, sort of the bigotry of low expectations, I suppose. I didn't expect much from Hellblade. I expected that to be all the game had to offer. I was expecting maybe three or four hours in total, but I was pleasantly surprised when after I played through the first room, I realized that this game was going to have a lot more to offer. Now, as I said, there's no HUD, there's no on-screen tutorials that Hellblade offers. So everything, even the glyph hunting and the, the looking for sort of visual tricks and illusions, all of that is trained very subtly through the design of the levels and the structuring and the setup of everything you see. Also, it's helped by the voices that follow you wherever you go. When you go in the room with fire first, you happen to experience one of the first visual illusions, at least I did when I was playing through the game. You cross a bridge, and right as you reach this bridge, you see a face off to the left. And as you approach the bridge, you realize that it's just a formation that looks very similar to a face. And when you go back later, it will no longer be there. But this was the first time when I realized, oh, they're going to be doing weird things with the structuring and shaping of materials in the world. I was then faced with my first real combat challenge. There was a combat challenge earlier where they explained the permadeath mechanic, which we'll address during the gameplay section and analysis. But these combat sections tend to not make a whole lot of sense narratively, other than that they are primarily constructed within Senua's mind. It's very possible that these are actual individuals who are appearing and are doing terrible things, but for the most part, at least it was heavily implied that these are primarily constructions within Senua's mind. In these early parts of the game, the combat never seems overwhelming and they don't tend to do it a whole lot. When they do give you a combat sequence, it tends to be fairly short. You're fighting three or four enemies and after that's done, that's done and you're ready to move on onto a puzzle or onto a narrative sequence when you learn more about the characters. It's more, as far as I could tell, an attempt to make sure that the player remembers that there's going to be more to do than just walk around solving these little light hearted puzzles and that there will be combat sequences and you shouldn't forget about them but we're just not going to really focus on them at this point. I will also say that having been inspired by the Celtic and Pict traditions the character design for these enemies is absolutely phenomenal especially once you get to some of the later bosses in the final boss battle it gets really incredible. I wanted to just pause and look at all the characters in these sequences it was that incredible and thankfully when you're playing on PC and on PS4 there are photo modes available. You can even access the Ansel photo mode uh, that Nvidia offers directly on PC by hitting Alt and F2 by default and it's absolutely phenomenal. You can super res photos, you can get some incredible shots. I uh, did a few shots but in general on my first playthrough I didn't want to have to pause the action but on my later playthroughs I got some cool screenshots that I for sure am going to be using as desktop backgrounds for the foreseeable future. 
future. So you go through some sections where you do some puzzles, you do some light combat, and then eventually you reach a boss. Now don't worry, we're going to talk about all of the combat and all of that once we actually get to the gameplay section. But for now, I'll just say that it serves its purpose and offers context to the overarching story uh, that is explaining more of where Senua is coming from. Now the fire or yellow door is primarily combat focused, at least as far as I could tell. There seemed to be a lot more combat sequences, whereas the red door is much more focused on puzzles. And it's when you are first introduced to these weird archways that have all sorts of weird perspective changes. Now I actually found myself flying through the yellow door, which is the fire door, the one I went through first, and I actually felt that it was easier than the red door, which forced me to think in all sorts of weird different ways. As to which one is better to go through first, I'm not really sure, especially having gone through the game multiple times. At this point, they're roughly equal. The puzzles I'm already aware of, and the combat, uh, of course, I'm already familiar with, and so it doesn't make a big difference. But on a first run through, it probably isn't going to affect too much, especially if you have the auto game difficulty selected, which it is by default. This game difficulty will essentially just affect combat in a way that dynamically looks at how you're doing and adjusts the strength and damage output of the enemies accordingly. I was pleasantly surprised also when I didn't need to change this difficulty. I'm somebody who doesn't tend to love uh, difficulty sliders that can be changed mid-game, but when they work the way they're supposed to and the game is well-balanced to the point where you can pick one and stick with it throughout the entire game without ever feeling like you had too easy of a time with it or too difficult a time with it. That's what I like. And so I have to give Ninja Theory props. They at least managed to get the leveling properly done in the combat. Plus, it's one less thing to distract yourself with. When you're going through a sequence and you keep dying, you end up getting frustrated and you don't tend to pay as much attention to the moments that can be more deep or meaningful that are explained through the combat. And so it's very important to balance the difficulty correctly. And when you offer a difficulty slider, it can often actually negatively affect the overall gameplay because somebody's going to be flipping back and forth in the menus, taking themselves out of immersion in order to make sure that they don't die. I would say this is even more true in a game like Hellblade, which promises a permadeath mechanic, saying that if the rot on Senua's right arm eventually reaches her head, that she will die and you will lose all progress and you'll have to start over, which I was actually incredibly excited to read when I first was playing through this. I was like, oh crap, yeah, a game that's willing to piss off players and play hardball. It's something I say all the time, playing hardball. Hardball. I can respect that some people will hate it, but if it's done properly, it can add so much because instead of just playing through a game with a sort of empty respect for the rules where you're like, okay, yeah, I, sh I should probably be trying or paying attention to this part, but hey, I'll just turn Family Guy on in the background. No, in this game, you have to pay attention because the game tells you if you screw up too many times, you will lose all your progress and you will have to start over. Now, of course, there's an active debate going on whether 
or not this permadeath mechanic was true, whether or not it's a lie to convince the player to pay more attention and try harder. We'll talk about all of that in the gameplay section, but I thought we should at least mention it when discussing these two gates. So at the end of the yellow door, you eventually run into a big fiery boss that you fight, and I at least had a relatively easy time with him. It wasn't too difficult, and you go on and you do the same thing with the red door. You fight through enemies, you solve some visual puzzles, and you eventually fight a boss that's very, very visually interesting. You complete that, and then you move on to the main door at the center. At this point, you can go through the door and you reach a bridge, at which point you can look up and see this awesome wolf-like, bird-like, weird, zombie-looking wood structure at the very top of a mountain, and you know that eventually you're going to be at the top of that mountain. The game doesn't tell you necessarily straight out that you're going to reach that point, but you're simply aware. There's times in these narrative types of games when you actually have this guttural feeling of just purely based on the level design where you say there's no way they could have put that in the game without me eventually reaching it. There's no way they would put that much effort into this sequence without it resolving in some epic way. And sure enough, you will eventually reach the top of the mountain. The reason as to why isn't explained super clearly, but Senua believes that if she reaches the top of the mountain, or at least the heart of the mountain, that's where she'll find Dillian and possibly where she'll be able to release him. So once you've completed the two gates, you go through the final door and things go black. Then you get a flashback to Senua's village right after she returns from wherever she was and she sees it all up in flames and there's voices blaming her saying it's her fault she did this and it's not clear what they're referring to but then things go from a very dark artistic interpretation of what it might have looked like into a very realistic representation and all of a sudden it's very clear this is Senua walking through her village with everyone she knew from childhood her family her friends her uncles, her aunts, all of them impaled, killed, murdered, hanged. And this is the moment that spurred her psychosis. This is what spurred this journey. This is when she really started to lose herself within her own mind. She started losing herself to the darkness. And frankly, you can't really blame her. This truly is a horrifying sight, but this was simply a reality of life back in the day, up in Scotland especially, basically wherever the Vikings happened to go. This is the point when we see Dillian strung up in the blood eagle pose as an offering to the sun god, and this is one of the most haunting moments in the entire game. Here it's established that the seat of the soul is the mind that exists within the head, and therefore Senua is going to need to carry Dillian's head with her on her journey if he eventually wants to free his soul. This explains the weird head that she has strapped to her belt throughout the entire preceding scenes and sequences. So this is Dillian's head, and that may seem morbid, but at the very least that's what they believed at the time, and that's what the voices within her head told her she needed to do in order to save his soul. And if you were told and honestly believed that the only way you could save the soul of your one true love was to carry their head to Mount Doom, would you? Well, maybe not, but probably if you honestly believed that, not just believed it, but knew it 
to be true. So after this flashback happens, slowly Senua fades back in with a newfound motivation, having just relived that entire experience within her own mind. She's looking up at the mountain with this bridge in her way and you're going to cross it. And so you do, and there's a little combat sequence that you gotta fight through, you do that, and then you go through a door and do some more puzzling. The previous sections were much brighter, more full of color. They weren't as damp or wet, but this one is all of those things on the opposite end of the spectrum. It is very wet, very gringy, very cringy, very dingy. It is all of the ingies, and I actually found it rather beautiful, but in the moment it was fairly distressing. After you go through a few minutes of this sequence and solve a couple puzzles, then you go across a bridge and all of a sudden the door swings open at the other end and this smoke starts billowing out of it. The voices in your head keep asking what is it, something is coming, and then another voice comes on and says it's Hela, the source of all of the darkness. And this is the first time you get to actually see very clearly your chief adversary slowly crawling out this door. It's one of the most visually stunning introductions to a boss I have ever seen. And don't worry, you won't really be fighting this individual right now, that's gonna wait till the end of the game. But Senua doesn't know that, so she takes her sword after revving herself up with the help of the voices in her head, grabs her sword, goes, takes a big old swing at Hela, at which point Hela smacks her in the face right off the bridge. It's very clear now that Senua is gonna need some bigger, better firepower in order to take down Hela, and once she wakes up on a beach, she starts chasing a light. This light is seemingly the ghost or spirit, at least the representation of it in Senua's mind, of Dillian. So she starts chasing it through the holes of all these broken down ships in what is, once again, a very visually impressive set piece. You eventually reach a large tree, at which point we get once again another flashback to the point when Senua actually met Dillian, and it's expressed how Dillian danced with life and filled it with color, and how Senua wished she could live life the same way she perceived Dillian as living life, loving it, dancing with it, and enjoying every moment of it. Dillian wasn't just somebody that she loved, but he was the yin to her yang, almost literally. He was the one that brought light to her darkness and filled her world with color. But as with most happy things in this game, it is very, very short-lived. And so after the camera spins around once more, you see the tree for what it really is, which is a dead, dilapidated, hunk of wood and it's riddled with corpses. The camera spins around again, you see it laced in fire and the voices get more and more violent towards Senua, at which point she screams telling them to go away and to shut up, at which point they do. We then see that a sword, a very special sword, is embedded within the tree, and it's implied that Dillian left this here for Senua to take and to use against Hela. However, before she can use it and gain it, she needs to deal with a few different memories and pillars that are scattered around the tree. You go through these and each of them offer a different challenge. Some of them are combat based and others are more puzzle based. My personal favorite was the one where you went through and had to actually find your way through a certain sequence that was very, very scary using nothing but sound. This is an actual occurrence in people that suffer with schizophrenia and with different forms of psychosis, and it's a moment when everything gets so overwhelmed that essentially the visual tracks in the brain and the auditory tracks in the brain overlap and become crossed, at which point you essentially 
actually begin to see in sounds and hear in sight. It's bizarre, but essentially the senses flip. And there's no way to really demonstrate it very clearly in any other form of medium. But when you're doing it in video games, you can actually express this by showing very faint things based on sounds and encouraging people to basically see with their sight. Of course, it's not a perfect representation, but based on the people who have actually experienced this, who were consultants on the project, this is actually a fairly accurate representation. For the first few minutes of this sequence, I was absolutely petrified with fear. I am somebody who is not great with horror games. It's not that I get super freaked out, it's that I get incredibly stressed out and my heart goes a mile a minute and it starts to exhaust me and I get incredibly grumpy. I'm not super fun to play horror games with. But as I went through this, slowly I started having the same realization that Senua was having as Dillian talked her through this in her own mind and in effect talking the player through it as well. He tells you to trust your senses and trust your hearing, to know that you're safe and everything's going to be okay. At this point the game isn't actually lying to you, they're being truthful. You aren't in any actual legitimate danger here. You just need to have faith in your hearing and in your own abilities and you'll make it out fine. The first few minutes of this sequence I was running around in circles barely moving because I was afraid that something would jump out and scare me, just as Senua would have been scared having this experience. But as I came to the realization that there was no actual danger surrounding me, I became more and more comfortable with it, just as Senua did. And this was the moment that I realized Senua's sacrifice was doing something truly remarkable, and that is that it was successfully getting me to experience the exact same emotion as the character. Now other narrative-based games have tried to do this, games like uh, The Last of Us or really any Naughty Dog title just for sake of demonstration. They'll show you a very emotional cutscene of a young girl dying, for instance, in her father's arms, and it's very moving and emotional. But but you don't actually feel the exact way Joel is feeling. How could you? You don't have a daughter that is dying in your arms at that moment. It's very hard to replicate that, and I don't think anybody would want to replicate that. No joke there at all. It's a horrible, horrible thing. But in Senua's Sacrifice, in Hellblade, there's a way that you can approach this very delicately and accurately with this interactive medium. It's something that wouldn't be possible with a TV show or a miniseries or a film. It simply would be impossible to evoke that same type of feeling and emotion. But having experienced all of these symptoms and all these things with Senua, not just watching her experience it, but experiencing it with her, truly made me feel uh, in a bizarre way as though I were suffering with the exact same affliction. Now I'm sure not everybody is going to have the exact same experience. As I said earlier, this is something that truly connected with me. And I'm telling you that now, it truly connected with me. But I could totally see how this wouldn't necessarily connect with everyone else. This is a game that is focused and trying to tell a particular story in a certain way and if you aren't the perfect audience for it it probably won't do a whole lot for you but if it does work for you it will do wonders and it will honestly blow you away and leave you in a perpetual and permanent state 
of amazement. So you go through these sequences, all of which are very, very gameplay focused, which is the only reason I'm not going into immense depth with them right now. And once you get the sword after going through all of these, then you're ready to take on Hela and you enter the mountain. You're faced with some new puzzles that are light-based, essentially you have to stay out of the darkness. It's sort of a representation of the darkness within Senua's mind, how she has to avoid it and try to stay in the light, focus on the positive. It's fairly straightforward and you go through these sequences fairly effortlessly. There's also a massive beast that is seemingly haunting all of the dark spaces within this mountain, and so you avoid it and eventually get to your end destination. But at this particular moment, you get knocked around and Dillian's head gets knocked all the way down to the bottom pit of the mountain. And as we previously saw, the only way that Senua can release Dillian's soul is if she has the head, the seat of the soul, so to speak. So she decides she has to go down to the bottom of the mountain and retrieve it. You go down, do some more puzzles, have some more fighting sequences, you kill a giant dog looking thing, you take the head, you climb back up the mountain and you continue on your journey. You go through a bunch of other gameplay focused segments and I know I'm skipping over a ton here, but I don't wanna spoil absolutely everything if you haven't played the game and are still watching for whatever reason, and I don't think I necessarily need to speak about every single interaction and opening of doors. Now, once you reach the end of your journey and you're seemingly at the top of the mountain, or at least the heart of it, then you get greeted by Hela after walking through essentially a portal. This was one of the most visually memorable sequences of the entire game, and it really was just outright awe-inspiring. I have no other words to describe it other than awesome. Not in the way that most bros would use it, but awesome in the actual literal meaning. Awesome. Worthy of awe. This was such an incredible sequence when I first saw it and experienced it, especially with the music playing in the background, the voice acting, everything was absolutely phenomenal, and it really did feel like the climax. Now you never actually fight Hela, you actually fight waves and waves and waves of enemies that seemingly never end, but eventually you get right next to Hela and fight a bunch of other enemies around her. Now I actually was mistaken when I first played through this because I thought that surely there's a way of, of fighting off the enemies as they attack you and then switching to Hela taking a few whacks and then this is just what you do. But no, you actually go through and you're just supposed to fight these enemies basically until you can't anymore, just as Senua would. This is why when I say once again, immersion is absolutely incredible in this game, I really mean it. The voices in Senua's head are telling you that you should give up, that you should give in. And if you really are immersed, eventually you'll start to feel exhausted just as Senua would because you've been fighting for 10, 15, 20 minutes non stop and that's the reality is that these enemies will never stop spawning because in reality you are supposed to actually die here you're not meant to get through all of these enemies and kill hella they will always keep spawning there's no escaping it so as the voices start raging and raging, getting more and more aggressive, telling you that you should give in to the darkness and let Dillian go, you keep fighting. But eventually and inevitably, you will die, somebody will club you over, and you'll just get exhausted, you'll get frustrated, something will happen, and you will die. This triggers the final cutscene, which is a little baffling and absolutely beautiful, and I think I'm just going to let it play so that you can see it for yourself. Ugh! <sighs> 
I learned the hard way to not be afraid of death, so no. Because a life without loss is one without love. You turn your back on death, and all you can see is the shadow that it casts. The longer you hide from it, the longer the shadow grows until all you can see is darkness. When our time comes, we must look death in the eye and embrace it as a friend. Only then can we let go of our fear. And emerge from our darkness. Never forget what it is like to see the world as a child, Samuel. Every autumn leaf is like a work of art. Every rolling cloud a moving picture. Every day, a new story. We too emerge from this magic, like a wave from the ocean. Only to return to the sea. Waiting to be seen again.
This is where my story once began. And so it has to end here. Because I cannot see further than this. Follow us. We have another story to tell. My friend. Go with her. This now will be your story to witness. And then the credits roll. Now, the obvious question is, what the hell does all of that mean? And that's a very good question. It's pretty straightforward, actually. Throughout the entire journey, Senna has been trying to deal with the deaths of those that were very, very close to her, specifically Dillian, obviously, and also her mother. Now, we didn't really talk about it earlier, but her mother was an individual who likely also suffered from the same psychosis as Sinua. Sinua's father didn't really know how to deal with this, but as one of the heads of the tribe, he had to solve it some way. And eventually, her mother was burned at the stake, essentially because they thought that she had become severely possessed by some type of demon. Sinua had to actually witness her mother's burning at the stake, burning alive at the stake, rather, and it severely impacted her, so much so that it seems to have been repressed to the point where Sinua isn't even aware of it until she experiences the death of Dillian. Now, both of these things haunt her throughout the entire game, and in this last scene, you see Senua cradling the head of Dillian, and also, Hela is actually faded in from an image of Senua's mother burning on the stake. It's not a coincidence that they're meant to be very, very similar, and that Hela's appearance is supposed to be directly influenced and inspired by Senua's mother. Hela is said to be the cause of the darkness, the one behind it all, and it's no mistake that she's portrayed as Senua's mother, at least visually. So in this final monologue, Senua accepts that she can't save Dillian and that he's gone, that she never really had a chance and that she needs to accept his death, but that she would be willing to give her life for his soul if she could. Ella stabs her and then we go to this shot that's very, very beautiful and strange at the same time. And it's of Hella carrying Dillian's head over to the cliff and dropping it off. In the background, we also see Senua's dead body on the floor. Now the camera follows Dillian's head down the cliff and then it turns back up and you see that now Senua is the one who dropped it and Hella's body is on the floor. This is a pretty straightforward and simple symbolic trick and demonstration of the fact that Hela was technically Senua the whole time. Senua was, was technically her worst demon and darkness and the cause of it from the very beginning. Hela is laying dead on the floor and in many ways the old Senua is also laying dead on the floor and we see both of them. Senua dropped Dillian's head off the cliff because she's letting go and she's willing to move on. She's accepted his death and is willing to accept the reality of her situation. The voices fade and then return, but they don't have the same power or anger behind them as they used to. Senua's learned to control it. And then she walks away having completed her quest. Now, some people think it's overly vague, but I honestly think that it's a delicate and beautiful ending to a delicate and absolutely beautiful game. A common misconception that has always irked me is the idea that video games have to be fun. 
Everybody's idea of fun is different, which is perhaps why you can have one person have a blast playing a horror video game and other people will absolutely hate it. But at the end of the day, you can't outright say that one game is fun and the other one isn't. What you can say instead is that one game has engaging gameplay features that are rewarding or give you some feeling of fulfillment and satisfaction and another one simply doesn't. I was speaking with a friend of mine recently about a game called Persona 5, a game that I've been trying to play recently, but it's very, very intimidating because it has so many gameplay mechanics, so to speak, going on all at the same time that it can be very, very daunting if you aren't already familiar with that style of game. This friend of mine is outright convinced that Persona 5 is a terrible game and simply isn't fun. That it's simply a large 90 plus hour visual novel and you should approach it that way and not expect to have fun, but rather expect to have an engaging story told to you. And I don't think she's wrong. I think she's actually probably right. Persona 5 is much more of a narrative experience, so much so that the gameplay is very repetitive, especially as you go on and on with the turn-based combat, etc., etc. However, with Persona 5, the gameplay and those things that have been crafted in order to make the experience more interactive, they're all placed there to serve the story and to support it. This type of structuring a game is not mandatory in order to have an engaging and interesting experience. A lot of other games, such as real-time strategy games or games that are focused purely on gameplay mechanics, work the opposite way. Engaging gameplay mechanics and loops are structured and built, and then a narrative or story is built around it in order to support those engaging mechanics. Both can be right and everybody will have a different perception as to what they like and different tastes and preferences. I personally tend to be a much more narrative focused person. I can get into a real time strategy game. I get into them all the time and play them with friends, but they aren't my bread and butter. They aren't the only thing I play and I don't have trouble sitting down for a narrative experience. In fact, I'd prefer to play a game like Hellblade with a heavy story approach over sitting down and playing 100 hours of Hearts of Iron. You're not right if you like one and wrong if you like the other. Both can be good and both are great and both are part of the video game industry that we all know and love. And the reason I'm bringing up this distinction is because I think it's important to stress that if you are looking for engaging and intriguing gameplay, specifically systems, you will not enjoy Hellblade at all. It will turn into a chore, you aren't going to enjoy yourself, and you should stay away. The reason for this is because Hellblade's gameplay loops are very, very simple and only happen when they need to. In other words, they serve the story and not the other way around. The combat is very simple, giving Senua the ability to parry, to have light and heavy attacks, the ability to strafe and kind of dodge attacks, and then also go into a focus mode where you can slow down time and attack these sort of phantom enemies. For the first two or three hours of gameplay, the fighting is pretty straightforward and you won't really have any trouble dying unless you really get distracted or get careless. However, after that, you'll start facing hordes of enemies with multiple coming at you at the same time, all with differing types of attacks, speeds, lunges, all sorts of things you have to try to keep track of in addition to fighting in a fairly small arena in, 
essentially every instance. Now this is probably my largest beef with this game, is that there is very little enemy variety. There's a few main classes of enemies, but they all attack fairly similarly, and when you do get the option to fight someone of a different style or stance, for instance, some of the enemies have shields and others are able to dart and spin back and then jump forward at high speeds, and other more large brute enemies can take you out in one or two hits without much effort, and all of these guys require different approaches. However, with only three real classes of enemies, it feels as though the combat never actually reaches its potential. Now, I was pleasantly surprised after watching all of the development diaries and seeing how the combat was when it first was initially programmed in. It seemed very clunky, didn't seem fun or interesting. But I was pleasantly surprised at how fluid and fun it was to actually play through consistently a seven-hour game every 30 minutes or so having to go through a large fighting sequence. It's actually really easy to play, and by the end of the game, I actually started to sort of enjoy the combat. But that enjoyment was quickly stopped out because the game, instead of having very difficult enemies that have really interesting move sets, which there are perhaps a couple of instances of this happening, the crow boss through the red door would be one example, where he throws in all sorts of different attacks that are really interesting and fun to parry and try to figure out. I really enjoyed that and that was my favorite fight. However, the battle seemed to go on for ages. One fight I went on for 20 minutes, non-stop, parrying, dodging, attacking, then repeating, rinsing and repeating, then rinsing and repeating, then rinsing and repeating. It was very tiring and perhaps this was intentional because they want you to feel exhausted just like Senua. But at some point, we have to call them on it and say that it's just exhausting outright. And I'll be honest, I don't want to make a ton of excuses for Ninja Theory, just everything they did, everything that's a problem or difficult in the game was intentionally put there, and it's all masterfully crafted and intentional to make you feel just like Senua. Perhaps that's true, but more than likely, it's simply that they were looking for a way to extend the gameplay to give you more to do and to increase the challenge, and so as a result, they just ended up throwing multiple waves of enemies at you and resulted in a fight that takes takes 20 minutes to complete. Some people have said the combat needs more polish, and I really don't agree with that. I think it's actually highly polished and works pretty well. All I want to see is a greater variety of enemies and opponents with different movesets, different builds, perhaps crawling creatures, more animalistic creatures, things like that, perhaps flying creatures that you have to deal with them diving on you all at the same time. But instead of having 15 enemies come at you at once and you have to dodge around just in a panic, that gets very tiring and exhausting very very quickly. The only other gameplay mechanic that Hellblade pushes is this searching for matching glyphs and runes in your environment. And essentially, the premise is that Senua has the ability to have heightened focus at certain moments, sort of as a result of her mental illness. Perhaps she's gained the supernatural ability to see things in her, her environment that other people wouldn't normally see. And in the development diaries and interviews with the director of the game, he mentioned that some people that suffer from psychosis actually tend to have a different outlook on the world that's much different than other people. They see patterns in blinds and in wallpaper and in all sorts of things that normal people wouldn't experience, and they decided to turn that in and of itself into a gameplay mechanic. 
It's a cool idea, but in practice, it ends up being quite frustrating, especially at first, because you're shown a rune that you need to find. For instance, this Y, and you can begin looking at it in all different ways, and you can even find examples of that same rune in different tree alignments, in different branches, perhaps not exactly matching. Or you can find the one that they actually want you to set up, but there's a problem, because you weren't set up in a precisely the correct position. You were perhaps a foot to the left or a foot to the right, or weren't standing close enough, something was wrong and it won't trigger. And it can be very, very frustrating. This is probably an issue with polish and it's something that could be ironed out in future updates to the game. But for me right now, while playing through the game, it is still an issue. I also stated earlier that the game doesn't try to hold your hand and instead just sort of throws you into the wild and expects you to figure it out as you go. The problem with this inevitably is that the developer has to give you some way of completing it even when you get stuck. They don't want you to be pausing the game and googling something because you're worried if the game is broken or if some glitch happened and you just can't find the answer to this particular puzzle. They don't want that happening so they want to give you as many clues as possible. And normally that would happen with certain pop-up screens in the HUD or something like that. But in Hellblade, that happens with the voices in your head giving you certain hints and with these floating glyphs and runes that pop up when you're in the area of the objects that you're supposed to align into that particular glyph. It's very, very strange at first, and I didn't get it for the first 45 minutes or so, but once I caught on to what they were doing and that I could simply run around an area until until I saw those floating glyphs in the air, then I could just sit down and try to figure out where exactly they were going. I wasn't actually looking around in my environment everywhere for these glyphs and symbols, as I think was the intention. Instead, I was simply running around in circles until I found the floating glyphs, and then very soon after I was able to just spam R2 and eventually find what I was looking for. Now, to be fair, there were a few moments while puzzling where I was actually puzzled. And when I found the solution, I was blown away and astonished and amazed that that was sitting right under my nose the entire time, especially when you go through the red door and are faced with all of these new sort of arches that change the perspective on the world. You go through the arch and all of a sudden the world is different than you previously saw it. Those moments were great. However, they're very few and far between, especially as you go on with the game. Initially, it's very impressive and amazing, but very soon after you get used to that and start looking for it, and the puzzles become easier and easier. And near the end of the game, you're expected to find and solve this big puzzle next to a bridge that will lead you into the heart of the mountain towards the ending. However, this I found at least to be one of the easiest puzzles in the game, if not the easiest when the voices in your head are telling you that this is going to be a big final challenge, the last challenge before you get to go on to the heart and face Hela. And again, I don't want to make too many excuses. I could say very easily that this was intentional, trying to make Senua feel very empowered, make you feel like Senua that she's actually progressed and that all of these things are much easier now that she's gained a better control of her senses and of her focus. I could say that, but more than likely what I think it is is that the gameplay mechanic have been so ingrained in the player that by the time you reach this final puzzle, everything else is very, very simple and easy and doesn't offer much challenge. 
They could have very easily introduced a new mechanic or some sort of new archway or perspective switch that would put a twist on this final puzzle and make it interesting and memorable in and of itself. But no, it's simply align yourself with these sort of floating broken pieces of perspective and then you're fine. The build, uh, the bridge is built and then you can move on and go about your way and take on Hela. It's very disappointing that the last puzzle is so bland and forgettable, but it's there. And so in summation, both gameplay mechanics are interesting and engaging, but they're very, very simple and never actually meet or exceed their full potential. And that's very frustrating and disappointing as somebody that enjoys the gameplay mechanics as they are. However, this is simply the reality of dealing with a game that is uh, what is, for all intents and purposes, a double A title. It's not a triple A, it's not an indie title. It's charging $30 for a highly polished, highly interesting, story-based seven-hour experience. And if you can accept that, then you're going to have a great time. But if you're expecting some sort of triple A level of detail and variety in a combat system and in the world design and then free roaming, blah, 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 you simply aren't going to find it because that expectation is completely off kilter and shouldn't be based in this game whatsoever. Now to me there seems to be one simple question and that is simply does the gameplay hold back the narrative? The gameplay is meant to serve the narrative and not the other way around and that's the particular approach that the developers took with this game. So if the gameplay is so poorly developed that it ends up holding back the game and it's more of a distraction than any else it's an issue but if the gameplay is engaging enough to keep you going in the story and in the narrative then it's done its job and as I've said before the gameplay does its job it serves the story and it helps engage the player and keep them focused and it provides some much needed moments of levity and interest and intrigue that the story simply isn't able to offer up organically all in all and simply, the gameplay is good, not great. And so, in closing, Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice is not a game that's going to appeal to everybody, but I don't think it even should. The people that it does appeal to, it's going to affect on an emotional and psychological level for the rest of their lives. At least, that's what it did with me. I've gained a newfound appreciation for those around me and for my perspective on the world and the perspective of others who don't think as I do and their perspectives. It's inspired me to be both more critical and more accepting of the situations I find myself in. It's reminded me to love those I have around me before I don't have them anymore and also to resist the darkness that begins creeping in to all of us. I offer Ninja Theory my highest praise and most fervent applause and thank them for making this game that is both impressive and important.